and welcome to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was Subs, Give Me Your Heart, released in 1978. And that's because that features Derek Forbes, who later on went to be the bassist for Simple Minds and will be capturing all his key memories from his early years to Simple Minds and to the present day. So let's hear my chat with Derek. So one of the things we definitely want to cover is your new book, A Very Simple Mind on Tour. Yeah. I found it a very vivid depiction of your life, but what was the inspiration to capture all those wonderful stories and your time in the group? Well, I've always been uh, someone who wrote things down. But my grandfather was uh, the head of the cleansing department in Glasgow, believe it or not. He was just, he's an old right. war soldier. He's in Burma and whatever, but he, he used to get these wonderful things because he was a top man of it. You know, he was the kind of boss of everyone. So he had the pick of anything that came in. So there was loads of stuff like Zulu shields and, and spears. And they got me a typewriter. Uh-huh. And all it needed was a ribbon. So I got this when I was about eight. I just started writing stuff, writing wee stories, and I had a wee football team, and, and I just kept taking it. It was almost like diaries of what happened. I'd just be like a reporter about the game and all that, who scored what, and how, how the goal came about and all that. So before the band was when I first started playing guitar, I had diaries from then. I was going to join Mott the Hoople, 1974 or 73, 74. Well, I was going to audition with them for lead guitar player. Yeah. I met a guy called Stan Tippins, who he was the original singer of Mott the Hoople, and he did all the young dudes and whatever, and he's on the record, and he used to play backstage once they get Ian Hunter and to do the singing. Stan was a tour manager with them, so he, he was singing all the young dudes and stuff, and when they played live gigs, he did that. So we'd done it with Simple Minds as well on stage with Stan at Soundchecks, and it was just incredible, because his voice is so high, nobody else can, can reach that kind of pitch. Huh. It was amazing, but his name is in the book. I was writing, I had a big brown leather bound book and I'd just write in chords and set lists and all the bands I played with at the time. So I was always taking notes and wee stories. And then I joined the subs, the scientist Stiff Records in 77. After I'd been, I worked in Spain, I was five months there and then I was playing every every night, rehearsing every day for six days and seven nights of gigs. So it was a, it was a long, it was, I always call it my Hamburg period. Like the Beatles, you know. So that's when I'm, they play bass because the bass player couldn't play bass and sing at the same time. The uh, sub single, which this book shines a light on, uh, "Give Me Your Heart," is uh, that's a fantastic track, and I wasn't familiar with it. Right, and and the other one, "Party Clothes," was the other one. Yeah, it was a hit in Belgium. But Belgium was always good for getting wacky hits. I think Plastic Bertrand and all people like that. So I don't know what number it went to in the charts, but it did chart over there. We signed a five-year record deal with Stiff Records. And we were in the off, the one off that brought out, and the only had three of them was off. The number for us was off one, OFF one. And then the next one, I think, was Madness, was off two, OFF two. And then Kirsty McCall was OFF three, and she was my pal. She became a friend of mine once. I was with Simple Minds, and I was looking for some hash. <laughs> and my friend says, oh, I know who I have Get it for her, and she'll come up with it. And I'm like, all right, Kirsty McCall. I went to the chip shop, girl, and I, so... We became great friends. We used to go down to our house every every other night when I was working with Simple Minds. And if we had a, a break or we'd finished early, I would just go down to Kirsty's and sit with her and Carlene Carter, who's Johnny Cassie's stepdaughter, June, June Carter's daughter. Yes. I think we were a bit rock and roll. She became a great, great friend. And then even when I get married, she's a great friend to my, my wife as well. 
And also she was at her wedding with Steve Lillywhite because I introduced her to Steve, such a lovely person. Well, I had all these diaries from Simple Minds when we started and the subs. So I'd, I've got writings from the subs days as well, where we were and what time was things happened. And Ali McKenzie left after a couple of months, our drummer. So we get Brian McGee, asked Brian McGee if he would stand in and play drums for us because we had a big gig at the Strathclyde University in Glasgow. And it was, it was a big gig. I mean, it's maybe about a thousand, between 1,000 and 2,000 people, I think, that whole held. I may be wrong, but it was it was big. So we played that with Brian, and then things kind of were starting to peter out with the subs. That's what it was. Tony Donald had just left Simple Minds. Brian got in touch and said, we're looking for a bass, we need a bass player to play. Could you do it, stand in for Tone? And I went, okay, did, done that, and just reciprocated the, you know, the favour that he'd shown me. So that was when I got into Simple Minds. And then I, I was basically, I wasn't in trial or anything, I was there as a substitute for. Tony, until they got another bass player, but secretly they wanted me anyway. Yeah. And I said, well, I'm I'm going to go back to lead guitar because you know I really am a lead guitar, so I'm not a bass player. Then my guitar got stolen. That's again is in the book, but my guitar got stolen. Gibson Les Paul, and I was away at an audition with the Rosillos in Edinburgh, and some good-looking guy whose name was Simon Templer, which I don't believe for a minute was his real name. So he get the he get the job. I went back and then found out at that point that my guitar had been stolen. I went, oh, well, I might as well just join Simple Minds then. And that was me, so that was fate. I always said if I didn't play lead guitar, I would play bass. Unfortunately for me, I ended up playing bass. <laughs> well, no, unfortunately. But, you know what I mean? It wasn't my first choice. But I don't think we, we get our first choice that many times in our lives. Yeah. That's what it would have been, you know. It would have been lead guitar. Because I was years ahead of Charlie anyway at that point, and so much so that Charlie wouldn't let me touch any of his guitars. And simple means that I wasn't allowed to touch his guitars because he put his nose out of joint. For me, it was just bass all the time. And then I eventually started brought a guitar with me and played it in my room and stuff like that. <laughs> but never plug it in on stage or whatever. Mm. So I had all diaries of all this stuff. I don't know if it was the person that the looked through the book the editor looking through the book and put the wrong thing but their first gig was in, was actually in Hamburg in the Fabrique oh that was the first gig it says in the book that the first gig was Berlin it wasn't Berlin it wasn't Berlin because I remember we sailed to Hamburg and it was all very beetle and we loved it and doing the Reaper band and all that having fun and then we, we played a gig at a place called the Fabrique which just means uh, the factory and we played that, and then we went through across, I think we went to Hanover and all that next, because we went through the transit route to Berlin, because Berlin was a, was a west west of German island in East Germany. I mean, the only way you could go through was through wired, there, there was routes, transit routes that went through, there were all wires, and full of Russians with fruit pastels in their head, and missiles pointing everywhere, and tanks and soldiers, <laughs> drunk and what about it. That inspired, obviously, the third album, Empires and Dance, which was all about mm. cities, buildings falling down, ideal homes falling down, and Europe has a language problem because we've seen so many different cultures and, and peoples as, as we went through. I mean, the whole of Europe and uh, and the war, war-like scenes. I mean, it's from, it looked like the end of, of some war. One of the great things about your book, Derek, is that it really does vividly capture the arc of Simple Minds, including in those 
those first few years when you, you take the steps from playing support to great bands like Squeeze, Ultravox, recording the first album, national TV, the old grey whistle test, including playing Chelsea Girl there, a fantastic performance. Yeah. And you can feel that excitement build and build and build. Yeah. And and today of all days, you've just mentioned that the very first whistle test was the first gig in England. That was Annie Nightingale who died today. Yeah. Annie was the painter and she had a great laugh with her. Great time in, in uh, the hotel in Piccadilly in Manchester. Just fantastic. She was a lovely, lovely lady. I'm a pure star, a real, a real star. I mean, she really was. She really shone. But it was, you know, the excitement was just building. It was just, uh, there was always something coming. We knew, we knew something was happening. But it took a while for us to get the, the company to sign us in the early days in, well, 78, nearly 78, with Robert White on the case because he was with Bruce Finley. But Robert White was the one that actually convinced the company, Arista, to sign the band. Took us down to London. There was two years we'd go, and then our gym would go down. And another two, we'd Mick and Charlie would go down, and myself and Brian or whatever would go down. We were taken down, like, week after week. There was a couple of us went down to meet the record company and whatever. But Robert White, he was stalwart in that whole thing, getting it because all the A&R departments from the companies didn't want to sign the band. And he said to the, the main man, Charles Levison, who was a company director, managing director, he said, well, the, the A&R department have knocked these guys back, so what do you want to do? And Robert says, well, I, I, what I want to do is I want to go up to Glasgow and see them in their own patch and see if I think you know, we should sign them. And he did. He came up and he said straight away, definitely sign them. So he, it was him that actually got us signed. And then they sent up a guy called Ben Edmonds, who was an A&R man from Arista, Sent him up after that, after Robert had said, no, we need to sign him. And this guy came up. He liked it, but I loved the band. But he said, but you'll need to get rid of the guy in the, the left. So it's Duncan Barnwell, who was my schoolmate. And it's him that got me out of Spain to come up, back up, because the punk thing was happening. And I says, you need to get back, Derek. Which I did on my 21st birthday. I arrived home. So that was Duncan out, which was terrible. But the way that it was worded to me by the band, not by, not by the band, but Jim and Charlie, was that Duncan had said, well, as, a, as he sacked, he thought it was me who was getting sacked because I was always going down to Blackpool to see my girlfriend who was working down there and uh, I'd take my niece down and stuff, knowing the donkeys and then get back in, in time for a Sunday night gig at the, the Mars Bar in Glasgow. But I would always made it. I never missed it once. So he was thinking it was because I was doing that. And I went, no, 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 it's you we're talking about. You're not really fitting in because of... You know, you're not wearing the, the clothes. Not you're not changing your image. You look nice. Seventies guy was denim's loon pants, that kind of thing. You know, he was. He didn't really change much to fit in. I mean, I was wearing. I was the one in New York Dolls. I was wearing my sister-in-law's leopard skin jacket. My granny's blue and black lurex top. Pair of pink satin trousers <laughs> and that girl's sandals, wet sandals, the makeup on and that. So I was just off my head. I just looked mad every time because I'd done that with the subs as well. Just we came for the glam area anyway, so and uh, so we we all looked characters. Jim was wearing a priest coat as well, so he looked mental and he had a bowl haircut. And Charlie always looked really sharp as well. Mick, they would swap clothes and whatever. And you can see in the first old grey whistle test, Mick has a little velvet bum freezer jacket on. Very David Boy-like, but the thing is, it's running up his back because it's just slightly too small for him. So when he's bending over his keyboards, you can see it pulling up 
<laughs> that's a lot of flesh at his back when he's playing the keyboard. So that's what we did. We just passed things around. Jim Kerr, all the early photos, very first simple mind photos that I could remember was he'd wearing a white jacket, which was mine. I bought a suit when I played in a cabaret band in 75, and I bought myself a three-piece white suit, a bit like John Travolta, but before John Travolta. <laughs> but that's what Jim's wearing. He's wearing the white jacket for that. So that was the thing. But Duncan, he got, that's how he got left out, was because he didn't he didn't look the part. I mean, he's a great guy as well, Duncan. And he's still a great friend. The reason I stayed on was that they said, well, Duncan's gone, and Duncan had told me, so I've been sacked. I said, oh, well, that's me. I'll, I'll need to go then. And Jim Charles says, well, if it's any consolation to you, Duncan thought it was you, and he was prepared to stay on. I went, oh, really? I went, well, if, if Duncan was all right with it, then, then I'll be all right with it as well. So that was it. But I've regretted that, even though it would have cost me my career. Friendship's a bit better than that. Pals have been pals for life with him. So yeah. not my greatest moment, but probably was a, a great move anyway to do that, but not, not my greatest moment in my life. Who is it? 
many amazing bass lines that you've done. Changeling is a great example. Creating such a, a bass line, how would that work? To me, what, what happened with Changeling was that Charlie had the, the chords for a Rolling Stones song called Citadel and he played he played this part I mean, just a guitar part. It wasn't the whole song, right? I mean, it doesn't sound anything like the Stones thing, but he played this chord sequence and I just played the root notes at first and we're working on it and John Leck, he was producing and and we were writing the songs. This was the second album because we never we went in there with the second album. We had nothing. We never did any any anything at all, really. So it was all brand new. And this is when Simple Minds were really born because this was us having to write, and we were under pressure. Got to write the second album, and that was six months after the first one. We'd been playing the first one for right through '78, into '79, right up to well, so about a year and a half. We'd been playing that, and maybe they'd been playing some of the songs earlier than that before I get in. The band, because I was in, I think, in March 78. Mike was in by that time, so he was in earlier, earlier than that. But the band had started, but they had songs that they'd played before that in demo form. So this was a complete blank page. So Charlie's played that, these chords for that song. And John Leckie said to me, he says, Derek, are we, are we next door? I'll give you a tape, I'll run you off a cassette and take it in there and listen to it and write a bass line. I mean, take your bass and whatever. But I never needed the bass. I never played the bass there. I just went in the room, put it on myself. Everybody was in the studio. I was in the kind of ante room and I listened to it and I heard in my head. I just, in my head, I heard the, that's a bass line. Right, okay, I've got it. And I went in and I picked up the bass and played what I was thinking in my head. And that was changing. There was a you know, all that, but all that stuff and the runs down and whatever. It's just I get everything in my in my head. I don't pick up a bass and start working on a bass line. I mean, one of the few times that I've did that would be Waterfront because Waterfront is just a pulse anyway. Do, 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 that I put on a sampler and then I played all the melodies of the whole thing over the top of it. So that was written basically on bass without anybody else. Gosh. And then when I went to the studio, they joined in and played along with it. So I so that's how I done it. I, I just do it in my head. I don't really sit, I don't really just go in and sit. But I mean, I did this track. I did the song for Kirsty McCall. It's called "A New England." Yeah, it's a Billy Bragg song. I mean, just to get right. Okay, this is. I've never heard it before in the studio. That's what I did. Doing loads of wacky stuff in it. <laughs> it was great. I was playing my fives thing as well. I did, don't think I had that for so long either. But that was after I was at the band. That was the first record I, I did. So I hear it all in my head first. I hear it all in my head.
Steve Hillage on the podcast before and talking about Sons and Fascination, Sister Feelings Call, amazing songs like The American on there. What an innovator to work with. What was he like? He was a complete spaceman. We used to call him Mr. Cabbagehead. <laughs> Hillside Village is another one. We used to call him just a rep of rhyming slang. He was incredible. I mean, he used to get a calculator and he'd listen to the music and he'd tap out on the calculator and he'd be working out numbers as the speed, the tempo, the it wasn't even. I mean, how do you get tempo at a calculator? I mean, obviously, you do if you're that bright. But he's, he's doing it with that, working it out exactly what it was. How many beats there was a minute? And he'd be a, he'd have a, a watch or a, a clock with him and tapping out, seeing how long that took, how many beats for it. And he'd work out the, the tempo to a, to the nth degree. It's just unbelievable. Because he was a musician, because he was a musician and the most one of the best we've ever had in this country or the world. So he was—he couldn't say no. It's like any musician, you don't know when to stop. I mean, somebody's got to say, right, that's, that's uh, artist painting as well. You just keep going, oh, I need to touch that, but that bit's a bit too dark. I'll put a, a, a wee bit more white in there or whatever. It's just the same thing with, with music. So we had about 20, must be about 22 ideas. And I think we ended up with 18 or 19 that were goers to do the, the album. But So we were talking about making that double album and says, no, we'll need to pick an album on its own and then we'll just give it as a, a special we'll double wrap another album with it of the same kind of stuff on the same session because he, he couldn't he couldn't say no and we couldn't say no and we were just on fire we did a BBC radio was it like John Peel session or something we did in London and we had five minutes left at the end we did we did the tracks we were going to do with five minutes left and the guy it was actually Budgie the the drummer from, not from Susie, but the budget from Mark the Hoople, he was doing the session. And he says, well, we've, got, we've got five minutes five minutes left here. Have you any other songs you want to do? You want to throw down them? Jim, Charlie and Mick and I just went like, uh, well, Jim, Jim, myself, Jim and Charlie. I Mick must have been involved. Brian was there as well. But we just went, right, right, what have we got? I think it was just me, Jim and Charlie. Just went, what have we got? Have you got in, Dan? What have we got? I just started playing down there, <laughs> down there. And that was it. We had the track Room, which went straight onto the album as well. It's one of the, it was a great live track. So not a lot in it, but we wrote that in that last five minutes and got it recorded in time for the session.
pushing forward by about a year, you've got New Gold Dream. Yeah, 1982. You seem to be in a sort of real magic moment where you're everything that you were touching turns to gold and promised you a miracle as a, a single yeah. took off. What was that period like? Very creative. Very. I mean, it was great fun. New Gold Dream time. Before we called the album, they were writing the album up in Scotland uh, in a place called Newborough in Fife. We'd rented a farm and we had a, a real wacky guy that owned it, the kind of farmer guy. It was just mental case. I mean, he's like, can't weasel or something like that. It was just a really crazy looking guy. And he had a girl who looked at us and managed the, the estate for him and whatever but she was there she was always at the house as well so her name was Frankie and she looked after him and she said right okay well, Frankie's got us a, a, a chef we're going to be here for a few weeks or a, I think we were there for about a month or four weeks or something usually we do writing anyway of an album in a five week period and then five weeks recording so it was always like a ten week window that we would take every year or maybe 20 weeks a year because we've done two sometimes in, in the same year. But so she was looking after all the finances and looking after the timings of where we were to be and all that stuff and what time we started in the morning, when we end and what time dinner was that and all that. She got as a chef. So the chef cook guy came in and says, How are you doing? I'm, I'm, I'm the chef. Uh, is everybody okay with mushrooms? <laughs> and is that in the book? So he said, is everybody okay with mushrooms? And we look back, aye, aye, okay. Aye. So he says, all right, we're having mushrooms stroganoff tonight. And we're like, fair enough, because we were all veggie at that time. I was the first one, I was the first one to go veggie. I did it for six months and I hated vegetables, so I had to, <laughs> to start eating again. And then we started again. Jim went, and you know, he just went, I'm, go- I'm not going to eat animals anymore. That's that. So we all stopped on the same day then again. And I was 17 years before Alan McCoy, so the Glasgow Rangers at that time, he took me to a Chinese restaurant and this is, what are you having? You having the, the vegetable curry? Aye, aye. And he gave me that, right, okay. I says, that's great. I says, what is it? What is your vegetables at? And he went, it's chicken. You know, we've got them. And we all pissed and still laughing. And that was me. I started eating meat straight after. I went, oh, fuck it. I'm just going to eat. No, that's me back on the meat. And that was at that time, but... But this guy said to us about the mushrooms, we had mushroom stroganoff. So after we get dinner, I was like, that was really good. Feeling a wee bit happy, but I thought it was just the hash that we were smoking. And then we're away working away and all that, no problem. Next day, got the guy says, you want the mushrooms for your breakfast? And I'm like, aye, 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 good day, aye. So and we're having to eat breakfast. <laughs> gone. And then he says, we're going to have uh, mushroom pizza tonight. And we've gone, what the... F- What's the deal with this guy in the mushrooms? <laughs> so they, they, some of them had sussed it anyway, but I'd never had them anyway. Hmm. It's magic mushrooms. He says, who, who'd like to try mushroom tea? And I was like, I'll, I'll try that. But then I was sticking my hand in the pot and pulling them out and just <laughs> throwing them down my, my neck. <laughs> I was, and I, I remember I, I went for a shower. I was looking at the shower. I was looking at one single bead of steam and I followed it for the top all the way down to my toes. Just <laughs> followed it right through the lot of them. And I was just could see that and I could just focus on that all the way down. That was the wildest thing ever. Then you're looking at wooden chair and you're looking at a pattern. You're looking at your hand and the lines of your hand and whatever. And you're going, that's amazing. Well, I've never seen that like that before. I'm not realising that that's what it was. You were just tripping. That's how that album was so wonderful because it was Sergeant Pepper. They were always smokers. That's it. Well, I was first album. They were all smokers. They all ate hash and all that before. Yeah. Jim and Charlie and I don't know who else, but they took acid. 
mean, I'd acid once, but luckily it was a pain drop. It wasn't, it wasn't real. But they did. Loads of people did. Mm. It was strange. I remember I had an argument with Jim about something, and I was laughing as he was caught serious. He'd noticed, he knew basically where I was coming from because of the, the mushrooms. It was just not my daft, so I was laughing. So I wasn't meaning to laugh, and although it was a serious subject, they took it in his stride. It was just madness. But it was a great time, that. Really great. And we, we had three drummers on it. We had Kenny Hislop, because Brian McGee had left 1981, so 1982 was New Gold Dream. And Kenny Hislop had the, the first four notes of Promise Your Miracle. That was it. That's what we took from a He taped uh, something on his Walkman in America. We were in New York, and he, he stayed up at night time. He'd be listening to black uh, radio stations, real good, great, funky stations. And he taped it and he got this one track and that was all we took from that. was So that's brilliant, man. It just sounded great. So that's how we wrote that. But that was Kenny Hislop. If it wasn't for Kenny, we wouldn't have that. And he got badly treated. He never got paid for that, which was a shame, which was wrong. But we never knew that. See, we were like green at that time still. Yeah. Do you want to business them? Oh, we were interested in the music, to be fair, and travelling around. Yeah. Meeting people and eating in fancy restaurants and travelling through the night and flying here, there and trains, boats and planes it was just whatever it was it was just playing in a band it was just magical
Is it right that it was you who convinced Jim to record Don't You Forget About Me? Yeah. Can say what, anybody can say what they like, but Jim didn't want to do it. Even got gold disc, the wee, of the seven-inch gold disc we got from Holland that says, don't you, and then brackets, do this again, because we held back from doing it. They were all wanting us to do it. Everybody was wanting to do it, but Jim was the one that was a stick in the mud. He didn't want to do it. And, do you know, without, it wouldn't have been as big a hit if it wasn't from Jim, because Jim did the hey, hey, hey at the front. Hey, 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 hey. Yeah. At the front of it, and then the la, la, la at the back is Jim as well. He put that, he added that on during the recording when we recorded at Wimbledon, a studio in Wimbledon. You know, that made it. Everybody knows that. As soon as it goes down, down, hey, hey, hey. That was, that was <laughs> nobody had that. It was Keith Forsey who wrote the song. He never wrote that. Jim did. And I just hope he is smart enough to get some more of a royalty for that. But we were supposedly all together at that point, which we were. Is it right that you didn't get to play that song live in that period? It wasn't until the 90s when you were back with the group? Aye, that's when I played it. 95, 90, no, probably 96, 97. I was with them back with them 95, so that was 10 years after I was out. So 95, 96, 97, 98, I was there. So that's four years I was back with them. In 95, I was going up to the studio and working on the album. And then 96, I don't know when Neapolis came out. I must have been around about that point anyway, 96, 97, 98. And that was after that. August 98 was the last gig that I did in Leon with the band. And then I, get, I was speaking to Jim up to the end of that year, he was phoning me, and then the phone calls became less and less. Right. Then suddenly I saw an advert that Simple Minds were playing the Kosovo gig, a big Kosovo gig charity thing. And it was SECC in Glasgow, which held, held about, I think, 10 or 11,000 or something like that. All the names were there. And it said Simple Minds. And I, I phoned up the office and I says to the guy at the office, I says, eh, have you played this gig? And Mel was up working with me. Mel and I were doing stuff. At that point, so I'd moved to nearer to the studio, nearer in Germany and all that, but it was for my kids' school, because it was great, up the Trossachs to Aberfoyle, so right in the Highlands, the start of the Highlands, it was it was wonderful at that time, but, so I had Mel up there, and I was recording guys with Wet 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 and that, and, that, and I was managing a couple of bands as well, I'm trying to think now what happened, well, I got to the office, and the office says, no, that's just paper talk, no, 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 laddie, that's just paper talk, that's what a guy was saying, this guy Gordon. He worked in the office and they, I was going, hang on a minute, it can't be right, Mel's gone, Mel's gone. Oh, they can't really advertise it if it's simple lines for no plane, if it's not true. So then I phoned up uh, the promoters to find out, I says, uh, simple lines playing at the SECC, and they're gone, I'm not, not really sure. And then eventually I got, I got in touch with someone uh, at the promoters and the promoter said, yeah, 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 yeah simple lines. I said, uh, so playing, I said, who's, book, who's booking the bands? He went, hey, it's Jim Kerr. I went, what? Jim Kerr's booking the bands? He said, yeah, that's that's how he's booking the bands. So then I found out, right, okay. And I told Mel, Mel said, fucking cheeky, <laughs> cheeky rats. So he said, right, okay. And I spoke, to, I was working with a guy who was a mm. comedian, Scottish comedian, who did all TV work and theatre work and all that. I used to do the music for him, a guy called Jonathan Watson. He said, ah, well, they've asked me to do that, actually, got him. And then, so Johnny said, why don't we put the band together around me and you, you play the band? I said, ah, that's a great idea. I said, Mel, you up for that? Right, okay, Mel. Got him, I got Trevor Stephen, if you know Trevor Stephen. Hmm. The Glasgow Rangers are all playing uh, guitar. 
myself playing guitar, Ali McCoy's playing bass, the guy Philip Biffer, who was a writer with Jonathan Watson, he was playing guitar, Jonathan was doing Trink McAvenny as a lead singer, hmm. and then I'd, I'd get another four girl dancers from a burlesque place in Glasgow. So we used to want to say, Simple Minds never knew anything about it. On the day, well, they'd never seen it until on the day, they seen we were in the, the back area of the gig as they came in in the, the minibus and they were shocked and they never came out of the dressing room. They <laughs> <laughs> just went, oh no. And we had such a brilliant time and we, up, we did the Come With Me, you know the one, the P. Diddy version of Cashmere, yeah, yeah. Led Zeppelin. So I was playing the guitar, I had my Les Bollock playing that. It was great for me because it turned out all the fans, they'd already told the fans that Mel and I weren't available because we were away abroad somewhere. <laughs> and all the fans were going, there's Derek and Mel, what's happening here? Because they, they just lied to them, thinking the fans wouldn't know. And they had his brother on drums, Jim had his brother on drums, and his brother's pal on bass. I was just a kind of pound shop again. I just turned into that. That wasn't in the best. We were doing really well. But it was just great for me playing lead guitar. <laughs> I was in Zeppelin at that point in my head. I was like, I'm off, I'm doing it. <laughs> but that was that. That was a kind of sneaky way to, to get rid of me at that point. That was the second time. So I've not been back after that. But we had met up and stuff, you know, I mean, the band. We met up to bury that. Not bury the hatchet. There was no hatchet thrown at any point. But. Mm. We did have a meeting with the original band, it be Brian McGee, Mike McNeil, Charlie Burchill, myself and Jim. And we had a meal and we were, we were going to do a track and play. So I can't do what else we were going to do. We were going to do a track, do a video and whatever. And then we said, I was with Mick, I was up at Mick's house, talking away on the phone to Jim. Mick took the Dobra horns and he just said, well, what's, what happens uh, if, we, if we write a song? It's just, we're, we're trying to play some some American band that played with the band, some song dodgy. So we don't need to do that. We're simple minds. We've written songs. We know how to write songs. We just write the song and then we'll split it five ways. But he wasn't up for that. He said, oh, no, no, I no. It's, uh, six, it's 50% for lyrics and uh, 10% for melody. And I'm like, what melody? But uh, that just fell away. Never happened because of that. It's just stupid. So if you're going to do it, the only way to do it is 20%. It's five is equal pay. Yeah. And that's the way we'll do it. We're not going to do any of this. So we've been doing the band for years. He threw me at the band. So and he, McGee, Brian left. And Mick left as well. And Mel left. <laughs> you know what I mean? So mm. there's all these different people that just left. But I never left. I get, I get sacked. So there you go. So real in the dark 
but you did some other great work. So the, the first time after you left Simple Minds, you worked with Propaganda, and there's some amazing footage of you and Propaganda on the tube in 1985 doing Frozen Faces, for example. And that's wonderful. That is incredible, that. And I wrote that, that bass, see that bass line, that was... Wow. Yeah, I put that bass line on it, Frozen Faces, all that stuff. wrote that at the time. I don't care about that side of anything. I never really earned a penny of propaganda. And the only time I earned it was when I was doing that stuff in 85, and then I was with the band for seven years. But if anything, we would get flights paid and all that, and hotels and that stuff, but we never got a wage. We ended up, one of the songs I wrote was number one in Argentina. I'm sure there must be money, monies there that, that could be claimed at some point, but, but it was just great. I just learned an awful lot. From that, I remember going to breakfast with Cal from Kraftwerk, Cal Martos. I would be three months and I stayed in Dusseldorf for three months. I mean, when it went, worked with Connie Plank as well, who died, he did all that stuff. Then he did the uh, Ultravox as well. Yeah. Well, I met Connie and his wife. We went to his studio, which is a farm in Germany, not far out of Cologne. We were in Dusseldorf, but I was there every day, every other day. I would go down, make a survey. We'd go for breakfast, we'd meet Carl, okay. Went into Kraftwerk Studios, which was an old, believe it or not, the buildings. It was in Dusseldorf. It was an old Gestapo building, and they had all the <laughs> every room there was four, four setups where it was like drums and keyboards and computers, all all the same. These like four bays are all the same, so that they could play, but they all could do keyboards. They all could do whatever you know what I mean. They could play whatever they liked, but it was identical units. It was just. Really strange, really ro- like robots, like they were robots and they weren't real people. But we'd see someone, we'd see uh, Florian and stuff at, at the disco at night in the discotheque <laughs> or the clubs at night time as well. I, was, I loved it there, I just loved, I loved that part of my life over there. I met a lot of great people. Thank you. 
to ask you about your um your solo record echoes where you did a number of the songs that you composed with simple minds in those early years the great version for example of film theme yeah how did that come about uh, well i was playing with uh, big country at the time and we had a bit of time off i said to the guy who plays his the singer simon hoff who plays with big country now and simon and i were going to do an acoustic album doing simple minds tracks so that's what I was going to do originally. So we booked a studio in Liverpool, Park Street, and uh, Simon, on the, the night before, I was to go down to Liverpool, Simon says, I'm sorry, I've, I've been double booked here. So I've got to play with this band and I can't do it. I can't, you know, not do it. I says, that's all right, son. I'll, I'll go down and make a start or whatever. So I phoned up the engineer, producer, girl, Andrea Wright from Liverpool, She's worked with everybody as well, but she's worked with Echo and the Bunnymen mainly. She's good pals with Mac and all, that, and all of them. Right. And she's worked with fucking Black Sabbath and people like that. and oh, just, just loads of people, but too many to mention. But she worked with us with Big Country as well. She was doing that. Album. That's how I got to meet her. But she said to me, right, what have you got? I said, she can't make it. She said, well, what have you got? What can you do? I said, well, I said, I've got everything you've seen in the movies. I said, I've got, I've got guitars, I've got basses, I've got keyboards, I've got drum machines, all that kind of stuff. I've got loads and loads of effects. I've got ukuleles, I've got mandolins, I've got banjos. She just bring a lot, she said. And then she says, right, what are we going to do? Well, right, we start with drums, what to what songs. She said, right, these songs, I sent a, a list of the songs I think we should do. And then she took me in to the studio and says, right, we'll start with drums, right? Right, give me a bass drum. So I'm just like, play the bass drum. Now, I can play drums anyway, but no, I wouldn't call myself a drummer, but I did have a double kit when I was starting it years before, 1970, I think, 70, 74 or something like that. So I started with the drums, I started with that drum snare, 
right, hi hat, hi hat, and there, and then right, give me some symbol here, near there, and there, whatever. A wee fill, do a fill, do a fill, whatever. And I just started to play like that. We just nailed it all together. I've got that right. What we're we doing next? Sat down, thinking, all right, that's me done that. Right, we're doing bass now. I said, bass? You want me? Oh, right, okay. So I did the bass line and then said, right, we're going to put keyboards on there. So this is me coming in back into the control room. It's unbelievable to get out. And then, right, we're doing a bit of guitar here, right, doing keyboards. So that was brilliant for me because I had nobody else, nobody else there to do anything. So I had to do the whole thing. And then I said, well, what about voice? I said, my voice is probably not the best to sing. I said, but I can't say, I can't sing. I said, no, we'll just... Right, we'll, we'll start vocals at 11 o'clock. You know, this was later on when I'd, when I'd done a load of backing tracks and stuff, playing piano and all that. I did uh, the American and piano and King is White. I did that just with a slide guitar. I was sliding on a, one of the acoustics, but it wasn't the best. But it was rough as old boots, but I liked it. It was, it was just organic, but getting really low down the voice. That was, my voice was getting lower. And that was and most of the vocals would be overnight late, and she said, "Well, get a cigar, get some brandy and cigars, and roughen your voice right up." And that's what that's what we were doing. I like the album. I think the album sounded quite good, more than good. Hopefully, a lot of people swear by it. And I called it Echoes because that was in the real to real cacophony. It was a bit of an Echoes. Echoes. You've been um, supporting the release of a very simple mind. You've yeah. Been doing gigs with the dark. Over the next year, are you planning to sort of continue in the same vein? I've got a few surprises that I can't let out of the bag at the moment, but yeah. I will be doing, there will be more gigs, there will be more book tour. I'm off to Spain this month, the 27th, I'm in Chativa, and that's in Valencia. So I'm off there to do Playing a Castle. I've got that. I got a message today from Australia saying that they've got a venue for me for the book tour in Sydney. So I'm going to get on a Spain book tour as well to New Zealand if I'm down there that time I'll probably get New Zealand sorted America as well stuff and the, the Italians want me to, be, to come over there as well so I can do Italy and I think I can do Holland and Germany and there's people in Scandinavia I've been talking to me as well but the thing is I've got got my agent uh, looking at gigs for me as well in between with the dark so I'll have festivals and stuff as well I think I'm going to be really busy well it looks like you'll be across the globe I know. Hopefully, I my bus ticket's running it. <laughs> I'm getting to the end of my lollipop, so I, I need to do as much as I can. Yeah, there'll be writing of a different kind as well. So I've got some really exciting stuff coming up. Excellent. Well, um, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Derek, and I've, I've hugely enjoyed a very simple mind on top. Yeah, and the fantastic music that you were a huge part of. Um, uh, thank you so much. Uh, that's not a problem. Thanks, Jason. Cheers. See you later. Bye.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.